0: You're listening to audio from Praxis Church, Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. This morning, our reading comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 34. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness
1: Uh, well, good morning, Praxis. It's good to be here with you. I'm uh, I'm standing in for Josh. Josh is down at the coast, uh, preaching uh, at uh, Norm Funk's church. I think it's uh, Midtown. Uh, and uh, yeah, we can pray for for Josh. Uh, he's I think returning uh, a favor. We've been blessed here by Norm's ministry uh, several times. Uh, Josh is preaching. Uh, a Challenging text. He's in 1 Corinthians 14, talking, I think, about tongues and prophecy, and so we he probably needs our prayers. Um, I'm For those who don't know me, my name is Keith Hansen. I'm an elder uh, candidate here at Praxis, and uh, yeah, I've um, been here for uh, a couple of years, and I'm going to bring the word to you this morning. So let's just open uh, in prayer. Father, we thank you that you you communicated to us. We're looking at a text this morning that says, just right at the start, that the Word became flesh. And uh, we have beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. This Word is Jesus But it's not lost on us, this word that we are turning to this morning. This word has that same power to make us alive. It cuts us. It lays open our hearts. And we would ask, God, that you would send your spirit to do a work in us. I'd ask that you would take um, just my preparation, uh, my weak words and that you would do, um, that you would do more uh, with it. And we pray these things in, in Christ's name, amen. So we have uh, just finished up a series in Genesis. We've been in Genesis for a long time, uh, since the beginning of this year. And uh, we're heading into a new series, an Advent series uh, after this week. And Josh and I were talking just about Um, how we might think about filling that gap. And uh, this is um, the text that we kind of landed on. And uh, it's a big text, Um, not just in terms of verses, but in in terms of of content. And I felt a little bit like this. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Um, This week I was in town for a meeting, and I get a text from my wife. Can you grab me uh, some milk on your way home? And uh, it's pretty simple, you know, I'm a pretty capable guy, should be able to do this, uh, kind of arrange my, remap my route out to, to head home, and and uh, then I type back, sure, I'll pick this up. So, almost immediately, like that fast, I get, uh, my phone lights up, look down at the little green bo- box at the bottom, and there's 27 messages on it, and I'm I Pop on that, and there's 27 lines of text, all grocery items, and I'm thinking in my head, what is does my wife have some kind of new AI that's reading from her brain right onto her phone? There's 27 lines of groceries. I, I, anyways, I'm I'm a good husband, so I you know I I say yep I, I have time to go I, I can get this so I'm I'm uh, I head head to the do my do my finish my route head to the grocery store, looking around, and. I can't find r- r- rugula. Um, I don't know. I don't even know what this thing is. I've I've spent 15 minutes looking for this thing. I, I I can't pronounce it. I don't know what it is. So I head home, unload the groceries, and I only to find out that I forgot the milk. <laughs> so wh- why do I say this? Where's Where's all this going? John has felt a little bit like this this week to me. It. John has one simple message. The long-awaited Messiah has finally come. That's that's our message this morning. That's the text that we're looking at. It's not complicated, but there are a lot of distracting ideas in John 1, and I have felt the pain of that this week. I I think, for, for me, that John 1 ranks up there with some of the the greatest passages in Scripture. It's one of the most beautiful passage, passages that uh, John pens. And it drives me, and I think this is true for Christians generally, it drives us to worship. But this is a massive text. The ideas alone in this text confront philosophy and religion and cosmology. It makes unilateral and unequivocal statements about how the universe began. But this also makes it too big of a story to tell. It is simply too much to preach in a sermon. And my head has been swimming all week just trying to figure out which hundred ideas I need to leave and which three ideas I need to preach. But the one the one message, the one simple, straightforward message that we see in this text is that the long-awaited Messiah has finally come, and that's going to be our direction for this morning. So all of the Gospels have the same purpose. They're written to reveal the Christ or the Messiah, the Savior that the prophets foretold would deliver the people from their oppressors. And each gospel emphasizes different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. And John's no different. He has an audience. And he is saying something about this long-awaited Messiah that the Holy Spirit has moved and directed him to write. So I don't know if you've ever seen one of those videos my son said, don't say it's a Google video, Dad. But anyways, I saw it on Google. But it's this video where it, it zooms in on the smallest particle known to man, a quark. Now, I'm not smart or anything. I looked this up, you know, so. But it goes from there and it comes, it pulls back at ten times each time. And it goes all the way out to the universe. I mean, I don't know how they got these pictures. I don't know how to get a picture of the whole universe. But anyways, they had it on this, on this uh, video. And that's a little bit like what is going on in this text this morning. In these first 34 verses, John is giving his audience a historical and physical and spiritual timeline of the second member of the Trinity up to this point, up to verse 29, up to the moment of Jesus' baptism. But John is doing much more than this. In these verses, John is giving us something new. He's he's giving his audience this dazzling perspective, a perspective that has never been, been spoken before about God's purpose for creation and the centerpiece of God's purpose is not man. It's his son, Jesus. And we regularly get this backwards. We think that salvation is about us, that God had a problem that he needed to solve. But this is really only a secondary storyline. The central storyline is about God and particularly about the son of God, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to be looking at at these 34 verses and we're going to see uh, the identity of Jesus Christ um, on display. And so these are, the, these are kind of the big uh, coat hangers that we're going to hang this uh, message on. So let's, let's get into it. Let's read two passages. And I'm going to ask that you just kind of pay attention to John 1, 1 to 5. We've read, heard that read already. But I also we're going to read Genesis 1, 1 to 5 as well. And we're gonna, I want you to notice if you see similarities in there. So John writes in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now if we turn over to Genesis, this is what the first book of the Bible says says and these are the first 5 verses in the beginning same kind of language god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters and god said let there be light and there was light and god saw that the light was good and god separated the light from the darkness god called the day light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening, and there was morning the first day.. So there's a, the, I, I think I can probably say, you see some similarities. We're, we're both, they're both talking about the beginning. Uh, we've got these images of light and darkness in them. And for most of you here, that's probably no surprise. We covered Genesis 1 way back. Um, in January. But these passages, um, both of them are familiar to Christians. They're they're well-known. But why does God, or why does John write something in his his letter, something that so clearly points back to Genesis? What's he doing with this? Why does he start this gospel with these beautiful and powerful words that point us back to Genesis 1. And and he he gives us an answer. But without giving everything away, John wants to show us that there is more to God than meets the eye. He wants us to see that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. But to understand John's reasoning here, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to Genesis and really dig into it. Genesis starts with God doing something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's doing something. The Genesis 1 account is a a creation account that is written to tell people about what God is like, that he's all-powerful. He creates the universe. He creates light. You don't get much more powerful than, than that. It it tells us that God is good. There's this constant refrain that occurs at the end of each day, and God saw that it was very good. It tells us that God created man in his his image for the purpose of stewarding the creation and spreading his, his face, God's image, across the face of the earth as we procreate. John, on the other hand, starts a little bit differently. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Genesis begins with God. It assumes that God is there at the beginning when he starts to create. But in John 1, you can hear the echoes of Genesis 1. 1, But John is introducing a bold new concept Something or someone called the Word existed in the beginning, before the creation even existed. In the beginning was the Word. He was there at the beginning, before creation. The next phrase gives us some more information. The Word was with God. So he's a separate entity. God is there. The Word is there. They're they're distinct. The next phrase... The final phrase, the word was God, now ascribes deity to this word. The word is distinct from God, but he's with God, and he is God. So just a spoiler alert, um, the word is Jesus. I mean, you all know that, but we're going to get there eventually. But it's not some kind of mysterious thing. This is new. But that's where John is taking us. This is, as I said before, this is new revelation. That Jesus is God is a radical truth. When the apostle John says that the word was God, God is revealing truths that have never been told explicitly like this. And these truths can get a man killed. So just a little bit of background here that I think can maybe help set the the story. Um, The Apostle John wrote this book somewhere around 85 uh, AD. He'd been alive for a long time. He was probably 75 or 80 years old himself. And when you're writing your magnum opus, you know, your life's greatest work, what are you going to write in it? Well, I I think it's pretty obvious. You're going to write the most important truths that you know. You're going to write the things that you want after, after a life spent learning. You're going to want to write the things that you want to pass on. And that's what John is doing. And these verses that we're in, they're the first words that he writes. These are important truths to John. But, but John is writing these things From a context, John has watched his closest friends, his fellow apostles, one by one be martyred for their faith. John himself, Rome tried to kill him by boiling him in oil, history tells us. And when when that didn't succeed, they sent him away to exile to die on the island of Patmos. John knows that these truths can get you killed. These are radical ideas. This is why Paul, before he's converted, is killing Christians in Judea. It's why Rome regularly executed Christians, and Muslims view this doctrine, that Jesus is God, as heresy. So we feel safe in Canada insulated from wars, stemming from religious hatred. But our faith is is the same as John. It is rooted in these radical ideas. Believing that Jesus is God has consequences. It means that other religions are not just wrong, they're false. And they are lies that come from the father of lies. And just if you want to know how well these things are received, just try saying that to your coworker, your fellow students and see how it turns out for you. Our, our government, in all its wisdom, has left Christianity behind, preferring to call themselves and I say themselves, this is us that we're describing here a secular, pluralistic society where we welcome other cultures and believe that all these various cultures can coexist together peacefully. That's what we think of ourselves as. But frankly, our government has no idea how deeply the present peace that we experience in our society is tied to the principles of Scripture and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Though they do not realize it, in removing the very teachings that shape our Canadian culture, they have set us adrift in an ocean. We're like a a ship with no mooring. And more than ever, we need to hold fast to these deep truths. Jesus is God, and that has implications for how we live. Let me show you. We have a God who came to us, who died to rescue us from our brokenness and to reconcile us to God. No other religion has a God like that. Every other religion has a God who, if you do enough works, if you can step on the scales and tip the balance in your favor, you might get to heaven. And because of this, because we have a God who has come to us, who has made us right with him, who has forgiven us, we are at peace with God. Romans chapter uh, 5, verse 1, Therefore, since you have been justified by faith, right, you have peace with God this work that Jesus did on the cross, it produces something in us, a peace. We are now at peace with God and this moves us, right? We have it and now it moves us to live peacefully in our communities and seek the peace and welfare of our cities and our nation and its people. And and that's, That's our heritage. That's why our nation is the way it is, because people that went before us had been changed by the gospel. The gospel produces this in us. And at the same time, we're also not afraid of those who would hate us for our faith, for our God, because our God is in control. He is meticulously sovereign. He has written the whole story. So not only is Jesus God, but we also, or it's Jesus, but n- not only is the word God, but the word is also called the light. And John spends or spills a lot of ink on the themes of light and darkness in his writings. You can, If you work through the whole gospel of John and 1 John and 2 John, 3 John and Revelation, you'll see light and darkness themes. They come up over and over and over again. They are so prominent that they appear in the first five verses of the the text that we're looking at, the very first verses that he writes. John says in verse 9 that the word is the true light which gives light to everyone. But what does John mean by this statement? And it's important that we understand where these ideas for John are coming from how is John developing them in his chap in this chapter and we're going to have to go digging again back to uh, verse 4 and what we'll see there are echoes from uh, Genesis 1 and we'll look at Genesis 1 here Genesis 1 verse 2 says the earth was without form and void I I just skipped a whole page here, just... This is... Nope, I didn't. Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, "'Let there be light.' And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness." Genesis um, is describing a physical separation of darkness and light at creation. But this darkness represents more. It represents chaos and disorder. When God says, let there be light, God is bringing order to the universe. He's dispelling the chaos. Light displaces the darkness and exposes the earth. The same language occurs in two other places in in the Old Testament. We're going to look at one of them out of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah writes, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. Yeah, and that's not a great way to talk to your kids. But anyways, Jeremiah does it. They have no understanding. These are God's children. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. And then he says, I looked on the earth. God is looking on the earth and behold it was without form and void and to the heavens and they had no light do you see that that line it was without form and void that line is the same line that we see in genesis it's the same hebrew phrase the the earth back in verse 2 of genesis 1 the earth was without form and void that's what god is seeing as he looks on on the nation of Israel in their, in their disarray. And what we see here is it's, it's not just that light dispels darkness in the physical realm. There is an application here to the spiritual realm as well. Jeremiah is describing what God sees from heaven as he looks down. The earth is without form and void. The heavens have no light. Jeremiah is saying here that chaos has returned to earth. Isaiah writes something that I think is helpful. This describes what's going on in Israel at this time. Our courts oppose the righteous, and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the streets, and honesty has been outlawed. And this is what happens when a nation abandons God and pursues wickedness, virtue, Morality, justice, righteousness, truth, honesty, they all disappear. In other words, in God's eyes, Israel's wickedness is like the chaos back in Genesis before God begins to create, before God exercises his will and drives the darkness away with light. And John is making a clear connection in John 1 between darkness and sin in John chapter 3. We read in John 3, so this is just three chapters after, you know, after the text that we're looking at, and he says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, It's talking about Jesus, and people love the darkness rather than, than the light because... Their works were evil, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I want you to notice a couple of things from these verses. John says that people love darkness. Now, our world disagrees with John's assessment. Science says that there's no such thing as evil, psychology would say that people do bad things because of the bad things that have happened to them. But John's not having any of that. He says the reason, the reason that we can say people love the darkness rather than the light is because people do evil things. And in other words, what John is saying is that you do what you love. When you love darkness, you do evil and wicked things. The things that we do come from the root, from who we are. The problem is that the darkness is inside of us. Let me say that in a different way. You don't need to get stuff out of you. You, you don't need to get the bad bad influences away from you. You don't need to get past trauma out of you. You don't need to deal with PTSD. You don't need to get the alcohol. You don't need to get the crappy food. Now, don't mishear me. All of those things are things that we should be trying to get rid of, but they're not the problem. We also don't need to put things into our lives. We don't need to add stuff like positive thinking, better friends, exercise. All of those things might be good, But they don't solve this issue. The single thing, the only thing that you and I need to to get rid of is the darkness. We need to get the darkness that's outside of us. And we can't do that. Genesis starts with God expelling the darkness. But somewhere, like at some point, this darkness gets reintroduced. God God has dispelled the darkness with light. He's created a good creation. There is, he's put man on the earth to steward it, and then something goes wrong. Where does this happen? Well, we we know this because we've been through the text Genesis three. Um, it, if we go back to Genesis three, we begin to we can tr- chase or trace John's message through, through the book of Genesis, and something happens there. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They break God's command and it changes everything. Every aspect of creation was good when God created it. But when Adam and Eve broke God's command, their sinful actions permanently changed the very fabric of the creation. And we read about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth up until now. It's groaning because it longs to be set free. It's groaning because it's enslaved And it was enslaved because of Adam and Eve's sin. But the darkness and evil go deeper than this. The darkness has stained and corrupted Adam and Eve's very souls. And they're going to pass this new nature, this corrupted nature, onto their children. To you and to me. But there's hope. Because the Word is not only God, He is also the true light who dispels the darkness. Now, make no mistake, this state of affairs, Adam and Eve's sin, the darkness returning to the earth, the creation itself being corrupted and stained by darkness, all of it was God's plan. From the very beginning, He planned to send His Son to dispel the darkness, starting with mankind. And we read in verse 4... John says, in him, what, that's the word, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. That, that quality, that lifeness is something that is just part of who he is. The reason Jesus couldn't die is because he is life. That's what the text tells us. Now, we can't scratch the surface of this statement, but one of Jesus' attributes or qualities is that he actually possesses life. The life itself is the light of men. Life and light, these are two attributes of the words. These qualities have the power to give life to men and women. We read in verses 9 through 13 that the true life Came into the world. So I'll just read this uh, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They They are born. How does that happen? The true light has this power to dispel darkness in men and women. And when it does, men and women, boys and girls, they are reborn. They're born, in verse 13, not by the will of flesh or by the will of man, but they're born of God. God does something in them. The true light causes them to be reborn. He gives his people life. The true light has made them alive. He's given them a new nature. A moment ago, they were lovers of darkness, and in the blink of an eye, they become lovers of the light and lovers of God. Years ago, I wrestled with my role in my salvation. Uh, Surely, I, I choose God. And today, I would emphatically say the same thing. I chose God, and I still choose to love Jesus. He is my greatest treasure. But I would say it today for very different reasons. I now understand my wayward heart much more deeply and clearly than I did back then. As I grow older, I see new ways that sin grips my heart. God's word reveals these things to me. I see how seductive sin is, how much I desire what sin offers, and in seeing how sweet sin can be, I see more clearly how dark is my darkness. Have you ever been in uh, your house when the pow- like at night when the power's gone off and you can't see anything? Like it's blinding darkness, right? You could walk into the edge of a door and you wouldn't know it and you're looking for a flashlight, and you have no idea how far that cupboard is or how close it is, this is the kind of darkness that you and I and every other person who has ever been born are in. We can't even discern what's in front of us. We don't even know what's... We aren't able to see anything. We have no sense of where something is or, or what we're looking for. Before God... But John tells us going back to John, he tells us that we're not even looking for the light. We are, in fact, loving the darkness. Before God removed the scales from my eyes, I loved the darkness. And without God changing me, without him making me alive, without him putting his spirit within me, I would would have remained as I was, a lover of darkness. Today, I understand that God has changed me. He's caused me to be born again. I chose Jesus because God lit my heart with the beauty and joy of the gospel. I finally saw for the first time that Jesus was better than my sin. God shed his light. God poured his light into me and drove the darkness away. So, we've seen that Jesus is God. We've seen the, the Word is God. We've seen that the Word is the light. We're going to shift a little bit here, and we're going to see that the Messiah is God. And um, there's a second prominent person in this passage, John the Baptist, and he, has, he plays a role in this story, and his role is to announce the arrival of the Messiah, And John the Gospel writer tells us in uh, verses 6 through through 8 that we've read that John the Baptist's role is to bear witness to the light. So when John the Baptist was born, the nation of Israel, they were waiting. They're waiting for someone to appear. And this is why, in verse 19, we read um, that the Levites and the priests had come from Jerusalem to ask John a question. They wanted to know Who are you? They're wondering, could John be the Messiah, this one that they're waiting for? And John flat out denies it. He says, I am not the Christ. And the teachers of Israel, they knew the Scriptures, and they knew that the Scriptures predicted a future Messiah, a God-anointed Savior who would deliver them from their oppressors and restore the nation of Israel. And their hope, and the hope of the nation of Israel, is that John the Baptist might be this person. And John does give an answer. He gives this really cryptic answer to the question, Who are you? And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And he tells the priests and the Levites that he's the announcer, he's the voice who is announcing that someone's coming. And who's coming? We read in Isaiah 43. This voice, this is John. He cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, we've seen those capital letters before. That capital L-O-R-D from our time in Genesis, that refers to God as the covenant-keeping God. The name that it represents is Yahweh. There's two names in the Old Testament, Yahweh for God, Yahweh and Elohim, Yahweh is, we, we see it right there in capital letters, and then the second one, God at the end, that's Elohim. So this text, in this text, when John is, says, I am this voice, he is saying, I am the voice who is announcing that God is coming. Now these words bounce off of us, you know like water off of a duck's back, but there is no way that these priests and Levites were ready for this answer. But you can be sure that they heard every word. They, they weren't, at this time, they weren't even clear on what the Messiah was going to do, let alone the details of his resume. And now John is telling him that he is announcing God's arrival. God is coming. That's what John is here to say. This section um, in uh, John chapter 1 to verse 34 is really trying to tell, say one thing in two ways. He tells us the same thing. He wants us to get to the place where we see that Jesus is the Son of God. He tells it through his own story, um, through this line of Jesus being the Word, to verse 18, Jesus being the Son of God. And then he says it a second way through John the Baptist's um, story. But the end is the same. John wants us to take one thing away from this. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the Son of God. But he is the divine Son of God. And this this makes all the difference in the world to the next part of this story. There's one last statement that's hanging out there that we need to unpack before we finish. The Messiah is the Lamb of God. So in verse 23, John the Baptist has told the priests and the Levites that he is announcing the arrival of the Messiah and that the Messiah is God. And the very next day, Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and John makes this bold prophecy, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we've seen from our time in Genesis that God has made promises about the future Messiah, Genesis contains the first of these promises. Adam and Eve break God's command and eat from the tree of knowledge. And this action ushers darkness back into the creation. So God prophesies judgment for their sin, judgment on Satan and on Eve and on Adam. But contained within that promise is an Easter egg. It's a cryptic promise of hope. And we read in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be two offspring, Satan's and Eve's. They will be at war with each other. That's the enmity. But this prophecy to to Eve is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He would be the one who would crush the serpent. He would be the snake killer. And immediately after this um, prophecy in chapter 4, we see the effects of this prophecy. Cain slays Abel, and the war has begun. And if we fast forward to Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and makes a covenant with him. Then in chapter 15, God tells Abraham that he's going to give him a son. Then in chapter 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise on Mount Moriah. And we read in Genesis 22, Abraham said, and this is in response to Isaac's question, God, where, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham's response is, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they went up the mountain. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John wants us to make a connection here between that line and this this text back in Genesis. Isaac was a picture that pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus, as the Son of God, would be the one who carried his load of wood up the mountain to be sacrificed. He would walk the same steps as Abraham and Isaac, and God would not stay his hand. What John shows us in this text is that We need this Savior to be the Son of God. We need Him to be God so that He can drive the darkness out of us. And we need Him to be our Savior who will stand in our place and take God's judgment for our sin. But the only way that this can work is if God Himself takes on flesh and lays His life down for His people, and receives our punishment for our sin. This is who Jesus was, and this is what he came to do. And as we enter Advent um, right now, we are Advent is the celebration of the arrival of the Messiah. And we have been in Genesis a long time. We've seen many things. We've seen God make, some, um, make covenants. We've seen him make promises. We've seen him keep those promises with his people. We've seen men and women uh, wayward in sin, and we've seen God draw them back. We've seen God exercise meticulous divine sovereignty in the lives of his people. And our text this morning shows God's meticulous divine sovereignty in a much bigger way as God orchestrates the events, all of the events of time, to this very point when his son would, would enter the picture and become um, our representative. But at the end of Genesis, there's still a very large and looming problem. God's people are still sinners. God has still not solved this problem And this is why we celebrate Advent every Christmas. Advent celebrates God's greatest gift to humanity. The mighty God clothes himself with frail humanity. The God who needed nothing. The God who supplied everything to everyone. Entrusted himself to the care of a human mother and father. There is no greater irony than this except that there is something else. This mighty God, who became a babe, had a father. And this father was willing to give his greatest treasure. And don't minimize that. Jesus was God's greatest treasure. He was willing to give him over to death so that we could become the sons of God. That is scandalous. So, this morning, in, in light of what we've heard, I want us to, a, I want to ask you, us, to think about what it cost God, the Father, to give His Son to pay the penalty for your sins. For thousands of years, God had overlooked sin, the sins of His people. And at just the right time, God sent His Son to be the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And once and for all, he judged and punished sins. If you have received this gift, John talks about that to all who received it. If you have received this gift, you are a child of God. You are God's son or daughter. And for any who are here this morning who have not received this Gift, this gift of forgiveness, God freely offers it to you. You can walk out of here this morning confessing your sins and trusting in Jesus as your Savior, and the light bringer and darkness dispeller will change you forever. And I urge you, I would urge you to, to receive it and tell somebody, talk to me, talk to someone beside you, but tell. Tell us what's happened. Because Jesus' sacrifice satisfied the Father's wrath against your sin, you now stand forgiven. Because God's light has driven that darkness away, and because God has put His Spirit in you, you and me, we have the power to live a life that pleases God. God. And in light of this great gift and the work that God has done, I want to I ask you, I want to challenge you this morning to examine your own heart and to see if there is someone that you have not forgiven. Christmas offers a really good opportunity to um, just meet people that we don't normally run into, family members, friends. And it's also a really good opportunity to reflect on this gift that God has given to us. And as Christmas approaches and and we hear about this greatest gift that we've received from, from God, I want you to ask, how can I hold, if there's unforgiveness in your heart, how can I hold unforgiveness in my heart when I've been forgiven so much?